0: Picture this, you're at a backyard cookout or some type of gathering and everyone is chatting like they do. You identify someone in a similar stage of life and you exchange the the normal pleasantries, small talk about the weather and sports and general culture. And you're trying to get a sense of what topics to avoid, what to pursue. So the subjects of work and family life come up and this person is wonderfully conversant and you start to wonder, can we talk about the pandemic? I mean, I don't wanna argue about vaccinations and masks and the politicization of it all, but I might wanna hear how the pandemic has affected your life and your family's life. For instance, I heard a story from a man who said, he never really had the thoughts that he had until the pandemic. This whole thing has awakened him in so many ways. A woman who shared that the pandemic gave her an opportunity to ask, what is she really doing with her life? And so far, she knows that she didn't want to continue down the current road that she was on. And now, she's a part of that great resignation. Or another friend who lost his mother recently. She was vaccinated and careful, but she got COVID and unfortunately passed away just after Christmas. In certain moments when people know or learn that I'm a pastor, the conversation will move towards what is life about and the meaning of it all and the hope and the pain and the hope again. But sometimes the conversation goes a completely different way. You might talk about the weather and current events, but when it comes to faith and religion, that thoughtful person that you're speaking to might say, no offense, pastor, I like you and all, but I gave up on the church a long time ago. And they might tell you that the place is really just full of a bunch of hypocrites or share a story where they were terribly judged or any number of stories that point to examples of bad religion. Three initial things I wanna say to you up front on that. When this happens to you, receive the story as faithfully as you can. Friends, if we are defensive in our reaction, we only confirm that we are more interested in protecting the institution of the church rather than listening to that person's experience or viewpoint. As Jesus followers, let's always listen with love. Two, I realize in a place like Grace Chapel, that you may be the one who has just said to the person like me that you left the church. And if you are somehow listening today, I'm moved by that. It could be because you think Jesus has something to say to this broken world. It could be because you love someone who's very active in their faith and this is a point of connection for the two of you. It could be that you really do dislike church culture, but every now and then, you pop in for a reason that perhaps you've hidden in your heart. Which brings me to this third quick point on this. Just about any time I listen to someone tell me about a church scandal that made them leave or about a narcissistic leader that repulsed and repelled them or from the turnoffs of a churchy or oversimplified answer that offers more guilt than faith and often asks you to turn off your thinking brain too, when it's my turn to speak, I often say, you know, I very much agree with you, and depending depending on what was just said, it's usually something that I can relate with. Often, I've been disappointed with the church, at times disappointed with myself. And when the conversation goes long enough, sometimes I get to say, I think it's a miracle of God's grace that I still believe, and that I still get to serve the church. And sometimes I get to briefly express why the message and work of Jesus compels me to hold on to the hope of life that he invites all people to. I try never to preach at people in this moment, but today, this is a bit of what I wish I could say. First, it turns out that God hates all the hypocrisy and self-righteousness too. It turns out that God doesn't always like church as it sometimes plays out. And how do we respond when people share their hurts or disappointments about church. In this series of Promised Land, we are looking at the problems of faith that plague us and the promises of God that carry his people. Today, we are in week three, and we are tackling the problem of bad religion. So let's look at Isaiah 58 together. It reads, Shout it out loud and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. I mean, the way that this passage starts out, it sounds like it's going to be an uplifting passage. But God is calling out his people here. Tell the people where they have gone wrong. And so in verse 3, it continues. It's like the the voice of the people is, is appealing, and they're saying, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Well, God answers here. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with, with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is that the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day to a, acceptable to the Lord? Now, just to... Pause here for a second. As we can see, like in verse 3, one of the awful practices that the children of Israel were committing was making everyone fast for the Sabbath and then forcing and demanding that they make up for that lost time by making them work even harder. Now, just about every modern-day workplace is at risk of some form of this. Your supervisor, or or maybe you're the supervisor that says, hey, Take some time to take care of yourself, which is nice. But then there's also that ongoing subtext that also says, just don't miss any of the important meetings or assignments. Take some time and rest, but make sure you get all caught up. It's like a modern day trap. Take a day off, at work three times harder than the following days. This is contributing to our burnout culture. Now, that's a little different than what Isaiah is saying in making your workers take a spiritual Sabbath and then exploiting them soon afterwards, But there is a point of us to pause on and reflect on, regardless of where you are in your organization. The next verse is very similar. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists, it says in verse 4. I mean, you might argue, well, yeah, they're hungry. Their blood sugar level is low. They're they're hangry. It's a tense moment that escalates even further. But it's more than that. Think of it in your own context. It's any religious activity, whether it be fasting, or coming to service on Sunday, or watching from your home today, or praying, or reading the Bible. And then turning the page in your heart and acting like your faith has no bearing on your life. I want to be clear here, because I don't want us to walk around with unnecessary guilt, nor do we want to walk around with unchecked self-righteousness. It's not about losing our temper on a Sunday or a day when you have spent some time with the Lord. Part of the up and down of life is that you might begin your morning in a word of scripture and find yourself yelling at the kids because they're about to miss the bus because they're distracted by watching TikTok on their phone. No screens in the morning is like the 11th commandment in our home. Feeling either guilt or wishing you handled that moment better is not exactly the crux of it here, but that's a normal feeling. Instead, it's more about living your life with no connection to your faith, almost with a refusal to actually allow your faith in Jesus to direct your everyday life. It's not just about a bad day or moment, it's about living in direct contradiction to the way of God. It's about singing the praises of God on Sunday but not caring about the needs around you on Monday. It's about learning certain aspects of Isaiah 58 but refusing to allow it to actually impact your heart and then having the audacity of saying, is there anything interesting in Isaiah 59? What God is calling for here in Isaiah 58 is a true heart change. In fact, if we read this too quickly and misunderstand, we might think that God doesn't want fasting or or other worship or religious practices. This is not an admonition to stop religious activity. It's a rebuke to stop empty piety and a clear call for heartful worship. Our hearts need to be changed and God can help us change. I know a little bit about heart change in the physical sense. About a year year and a half ago, I underwent elective open heart surgery. Maybe you're thinking, I didn't think he was that old, and he looks relatively healthy. Yeah, that's what I said to the cardiologist. But in 2016, I, I went to my annual checkup with my primary care doctor for the first time in a long time. And he asked me all the questions and did all the checkups and did what was a formality of listening to my heart, but but, but lingered longer and longer and longer. And then he finally said, has anyone ever told you that you have a heart murmur? I said, no. He said, what about your previous primary care doctor? Well, I haven't seen one in a really long time. How bad is the murmur? Significant. Significant enough that you should have shortness of breath and some chest pain. I didn't have any pain. I didn't have any shortness of breath. I'm sending you to the cardiologist, and you need to get a move on this. Next thing I knew, I had a cardiologist. There I was on a, on a treadmill doing stress tests and blood work and echocardiograms. My, 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 my cardiologist, his name is Dr. Shope, Lester, Lester Shope. He says, good news, bad news, which do you want first? I said, give me the, give me the bad news first. He's like, let me tell you the good news. And the good news is that you have a great heart. Now, this is something that people have told me about, that have a good heart, but never has it been empirically verified, so I was very grateful for that. The bad news, though, is that the valve is going bad. We can take care of it through open-heart surgery. He explained that the easy thing to do is to replace the valve, but you live in Boston, some of the best surgeons work here, and there are a handful of surgeons who may be able to fix your original valve. He explained it as science and art. And so began a journey of figuring out when was gonna be the right time for surgery. One of the things that my cardiologist said to me was, we are making decisions that will determine whether you meet your grandchildren or see them get married. At the time, my oldest wasn't even 10. Candidly, I was in denial. I didn't feel like a guy with a heart issue. I worked out regularly, I didn't have any pains or shortness of breath, and my kids were young, and though the cardiologist insisted that I would be safe in surgery, I couldn't help but wonder what if something went wrong. Each visit, the cardiologist would look at my tests and he said, nothing has changed, but we really should talk about when we want to do this. And at the end of 2019, he said, something has changed, very slightly, but your heart has changed. Let's get surgery in 2020. It feels like the right year. There are two amazing surgeons that I want you to talk to. The younger guy, who's a surgeon in his late 50s, is my go-to guy. The older guy, who is older, he's like a magician. But I doubt he would take your case. I don't think it'll be interesting enough for him. But maybe he'll schedule a consult? Not interesting enough. Even in my denial, I took that a bit personally. I said, Doctor, let me tell you more about Isaiah 58. But let me tell you more about Isaiah 58. Let's pause the story there. What Isaiah is prescribing in the second half of this chapter is a change of heart. You might say that Isaiah is prescribing a form of heart surgery. And what was missing in the first five verses is worship without heart. It was religious activity without conviction, tradition without meaning. And not only is all that empty, worthless, and in vain, but it also offends God. The problem is bad religion, and the need is heart change. The promise God gives in verses nine through 14, when, when you show the love of God and the justice of God and the mercy of God, then God will be near to you. God near you in exile, like the children of Israel are? Yes. God near you always. Let's take a look in these in these verses here. Verse 6 says, "Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke?" Now, these words might sound familiar to you as they sound very close to Isaiah 61, which is directly what Jesus quotes in Luke chapter four, for those of you who are familiar with that. I wanna keep reading to you the words of Isaiah, and I, and I want to invite you to not only feel the beauty and poetry, but also the passion and inspiration in them, because, because there's ministry in them. Verse seven says, it is, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor, the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger and malicious talk, And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing it as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Oh, there's so much beauty to unpack there. To summarize, according to the words of the prophet Isaiah, when we show justice, when we show mercy, when we show love, verse nine says, "'Then the Lord will answer, Verse 10 says, then your light will shine in the darkness. 11 says, then the Lord will guide you always. Verse 14 says, then you will find joy in the Lord. All those promises are there and clear. The problem is our bad religion. The need is for our heart change. The promise is God's presence with us as we live the life He has called us to. Well, it's an uh, extraordinary understatement to make, but the year 2020 was something, right? I mean, a few months into the shutdown, the office of the surgeon that I really wanted gave me a call and said, because of new COVID policies involving heart surgery, you are now one of the few that qualify So this surgeon that you wanted, Dr. Rasagar, can now schedule you for late summer. You know, between the pre-op testing and pre-surgery appointments, I took at least two dozen COVID tests that summer. And those were the type of COVID tests that like, you know, put the Q-tip like all the way back into your brain type of a thing and like, you know, spun it around for 10 minutes. But late August, there I was, walking into Tufts Medical Hospital at 6.30 in the morning. Nobody can go in with me so my dad just dropped me off and was headed back to be with my wife Susan and my mom and the kids. I felt for them. By this point, I knew that this was a great decision and I was, I was confident of, of the outcome. Uh, and, and I had anxiety. The anxiety I had was whether or not they could actually fix the valve or if they would have to replace it. If they replaced it, I didn't love the idea of going on Coumadin so early in my life But I knew even that would be better for my ongoing heart health. During my last consult with this gifted surgeon, he gave me encouraging percentages. He told me there's no guarantees and we have to make backup plans and contingencies, but then he candidly said, I can fix it. It was as close to a promise as I could get. I can I tell you something? I mean, it's heart surgery, so I, I hope you understand this is a bit dramatic for me. But upon reflecting on it, when you're dropped off early in the morning on your way to have your chest broken open, and there's not a single soul in the hallway or in the lobby, it's lonely. It feels like a form of exile. I mean, literally all I had was my ID in a contact lens case, not even a phone. The message of our series that summer was God with us. And the mental image of God with with Joseph in the pit was very much on my mind. God was with me. And the song in my heart and, and the song that I mumbled down these dark hallways was, this is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. This is how I fight my battles. I tell you that brought me peace and strength, and confidence, and sensing the Lord's nearness. In the post-operating room, you know, you wake up and you think to yourself, I made it. I had spent some time mentally preparing for this. Uh, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to feel pain, and they had told me all these things up front. I was going to feel groggy and maybe confused, and my wrists and elbows and my neck were going to have tubes. It's going to be a real tough moment. I'm so grateful that modern-day medicine does everything they can to make those moments easier. It was tough, but thankfully better than I imagined. And the Lord was with me, along with an amazing team of doctors and nurses and all these wonderful people praying for me. A few moments after waking up, the surgeon told me that he was able to fix the original valve. And everything was as expected and went as planned. By the end of the night, they let me stand up And then they moved me to a regular room, and as the hours went on, I'd eat food and shed the tube out of my neck and took walks and took a shower. I had a surgery on a Tuesday, and by Saturday morning, they sent me home. Three weeks after that, I met Dr. Rasagar for a post-op meeting, and he looked at my recent x-ray and looked at the incision site and and pushed on my chest in, in the exact ways that they told me not to push on my chest. And everything was fine. He said, it was a pleasure meeting you um, and you'll never see me again. (laughs) Thank you and amen, may it be so. So many life lessons learned there. Among them included, our problems won't just go away by themselves. The ones that will largely determine our life might require the most dramatic of changes. My heart needed a change. I was fortunate to hold on to the promise of a gifted surgeon and he was extraordinary. But spiritually, our hearts need a change. And what Isaiah is saying that we will not experience the nearness of God if we act religiously without truly pursuing being in full relationship with God with our full hearts. Our problems won't go away. Our problem of bad religion won't go away. I mean, Isaiah 58 is probably written 600 years before the time of Jesus. And just about every week, I see a story in modern-day Christianity involving some sort of scandal, involving a pastor or a Christian leader, or a church participating in some form of a cover-up. And I read the article carefully, trying to understand the accounts. I ask all the normal questions. Is this true? Is there more? Is there another side to this? How accurate is this? In many cases, it's revealed the pastor really did embezzle. The leader really was caught in adultery, and he is married with children and now fired and dismissed. The church really did have meetings when they intentionally made a series of decisions to hide the truth of an abusive situation involving one of their own. And you ask yourself, how could they do that? Often I wonder, what am I a part of? 2,600 years later since Isaiah, we still have Bad religion. This summer, many of us listened to a podcast series called The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill, which was a 12-episode series that chronicled one of America's most popular young pastors, a highly influential church, and one of the most significant church planting movements of the last two decades. It was an extraordinary cautionary tale of what happens when the church places an unhealthy value on talent and success and willingly turns a blind eye on leadership abuse, manipulation, and a lack of character. Many of us on staff and countless others were listening to it. In fact, there are over three million downloads of the series. It broke into Apple's top three podcasts at one point and still remains as one of the most listened to podcast series to date. So important was it that we even made space for our own staff to meet, to listen to each other, to process aloud and lament a bit, and consider what this means for us in our context. So much to unpack. But in short, this was yet another painful reminder of bad religion. Friends, unfortunately, there will always be bad religion. There will always be scandal and corruption in every sector of life always a politician caught in an incriminating headline and an athlete or celebrity scandal, and yes, more instances of bad religion. And you and I should never assume that we will be exempt from such corruption or scandal. But even if you and I are not caught in some salacious or public outing of wrong, we can still be guilty of bad religion, of the sins of our own hypocrisy and self-righteousness. The type of bad religion that observes religious practice but does not honor God by worshiping, him, by worshiping Him fully or by loving our neighbors or meeting the needs around us. We can't be the people who attend services in person or online and read our Bibles or read a devotion and ignore the pain and needs around us. We can't pray for God's will and then turn a blind eye to injustice and not show love to others. That is literally what Isaiah 58 is calling out. When we read the Gospels, Jesus took issue with the hypocrites and the self-righteous, and it was the sinners that he showed mercy to and invited them to know his kingdom. May we show that same mercy and love to those around us. Around us. What if we could confront our empty religiosity or false piety and our self-righteousness and undergo the type of heart change that would worship God fully with our full being, that would show a Christ-rooted justice, a kingdom-informed kindness, and Jesus' gospel-shaped love to our neighbor and to the stranger and to the foe and to all others. I bet if we were that kind of Jesus followers for the long haul that the perception of Christianity in the West would change. I bet years from now, our children will be at their own backyard barbecues. And when the big questions of life come up, and when the topic of religion comes up, the conversation might shift from, I gave up on the church a long time ago, to, I think the way of Jesus is truly good for this world. My friends, right now, we are making decisions that are going to determine. What type, of, what type of church our children and grandchildren will not only receive from us, but will create for themselves, God willing. So may we pursue lives not of self-righteousness, but of true heart change that gets to live fully in the promises of God, that we experience his nearness, his guidance, and his joy. Let it be so. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for, again, the gift of your scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to live out the hypocrisy of the first part of Isaiah 58, but that we would live in this vision that you have called us to in the second half of 58, where we are people who show love to the people around us, where we act justly, where we serve needs. And may we be able to experience the promises, Lord, that you have for us in Scripture. That we'll experience your nearness and your goodness and your love and your joy. That we'll experience this light in the midst of this darkness. Lord, we ask that you would convict us where necessary. Expose our false piety and our hypocrisy and our self-righteousness. And help us, Lord, to make the changes that we need to change in our hearts We know that it will be vulnerable and costly, but may you help us, Lord. May your spirit empower us and transform us. We desire, Lord, to be your faithful people. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen and amen.